Hello and welcome to Independent Thinking, the weekly podcast from Chatham House. I'm Bronwyn Maddox, the director. This week we're looking at the latest on Sweden and Finland's accession to NATO. This week the Hungarian parliament finally ratified Finland's membership to the alliance two weeks after President Erdogan in Turkey gave his seal of approval following a meeting with the Finnish president. Sweden, however, remains trapped in limbo, with both Turkey and Hungary delaying Stockholm's membership, and Erdogan in particular asking for more concessions. We'll discuss why Turkey and Hungary took issue with Sweden and Finland and their membership, what the strategic situation in the Baltic looks like now with only Finland in NATO, and the challenges facing Sweden amid fraught ties with President Erdogan. We'll also look ahead to Turkey's presidential election in May. Recent opinion polls point to a neck-and-neck race, with some polls even showing President Erdogan falling behind the opposition. Turkish voters will cast their votes on 14th of May, so we'll discuss the sentiment in Turkey ahead of that election and how the world might respond to a change in power in Ankara for the first time in 20 years. Joining us down the line is... Henry van Hannen, a research director with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs. Welcome, Henry. Thank you. Very good to have you with us. And here in the studio with me to give us an insight into Turkey is Galeb Dale, an associate fellow with our Middle East and North Africa program. Welcome back to the podcast in person this time, Galeb. Thank you. Very good to have you here. Let's start first with Finland and Sweden and where they sit regarding NATO membership. Henry, Perhaps you can take us into that position and what has happened with them both. Well, where we stand right now is that it's very likely that Finland will be a member of NATO before Sweden. And this is due to the fact that Turkey has decided to split its national ratification process. We saw that uh, after uh, President Nidista visited uh, President Erdogan in, in Ankara, and after which we got the news that, that Turkey will continue the process with Finland and we're actually expecting the ratification quite soon. And hence ending the process, we got the ratification from Hungary as well. Yet the problem seems to be that there's not yet a clear path for Sweden to go forward. We have heard from Hungary that they're expecting changes in the behavior between uh, the government relations of 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 uh, Sweden and Hungary. And from Turkey, we are getting the same vague message saying that Sweden must do more in order to fulfill the criteria that was agreed upon in the Madrid summit in the trilateral agreement between Finland, Sweden and Turkey. So this is where we are right now. Gallup, just tell us why you think Turkey has tried to divide the two in this way. I think the logic for Turkey has always been clear. Turkey made less of demand from Finland, more of the demand from Sweden. And I think by uh, ratifying the, uh, by, you know, signaling the ratification of the Finnish application, Turkey is basically trying to send a message that it is not against the NATO expansion, uh, but it is like just making very concrete uh, demands regarding its security. So that's from Turkish point of view has been uh, quite clear because the Turkish official position has been pro-NATO enlargement even towards uh, Ukraine and Georgia. So by ratifying by ratifying the Finnish uh, Finnish uh, application, that's pretty much is in line with the Turkish position. So what is its problem with Sweden? I think uh, thus far the, uh, the the three issue comes to fore uh, in Turkey's narrative towards. Uh, Sweden, and those are more or less the issues that Turkey has put 
into memorandum, the trilateral memorandum that is signed with Finland and Sweden at Madrid summit last year. The first one was the the Turkey demanded Sweden and Finland to lift the arms embargo which they imposed following Turkey's military intervention into Syria in 2019 against the pro, uh, against the Syrian Kurdish SDF. Uh, and similar to m- many Western nations, they also imposed these uh, arms embargoes, but that has been lifted now. The second one Turkey is making uh, is uh, saying that the Sweden has to take Turkey's security concerns much more seriously. Namely, that means like, you know, doing more vis-a-vis the PKK, but also vis-a-vis uh, the group called the Gülenis, which has been accused of uh, uh, committing the 2016 uh, coup in Turkey. Uh, the trick that uh, the, the Sweden has already actually strengthened its anti-terror law, but the trick is the Sweden makes a distinction similar to many other NATO and European uh, countries between the PKK and the Syrian Kurdish PYD, uh, whereas the Turkey wants the both to be treated the same. The third element is related to some of Turkey's extradition requests from Sweden. Uh, sim- uh, uh, related to the previous uh, item, Turkey is asking Sweden to extradite certain Turkish nationals living in Sweden uh, who Turkey accuses to have links to terrorism. Sweden, uh, in uh, in response, say that any extradition request has to go through the due legal processes, so therefore is, uh, is not going to extradite them soon. Henry, what do you make of this? Do you think that these are substantial, serious, uh, detailed um, challenges to Sweden, which Sweden can take one by one and answer, uh, or is there more going on than this? To a degree, yes. But then again, I think we do also must we also have to keep in mind that we should not consider this process as something that is 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 for Finland and Sweden to solve bilaterally with Turkey. This was never the case in the process. I think this is more about having a significant political chip in your pocket right now. The same applies to Hungary. Now, this is something, this is a scenario where you can try to utilize and maximize your gains in a way that you put it in this framework of of building a a, some kind of a new approach to Turkish security concerns. Whereas, for example, in Finland and Sweden both, I think the PKK has been considered a terrorist organization for a long time, but there's already been a bilateral uh, cooperation between intelligence services on these issues. So, of course, this is this is sort of the public frame of this debate, when to ratify and when to not. But at the, end, but at the same time, a lot of it has to do with Turkish relationship with the Americans, the United States, and also with Turkey wanting to push its agenda for on, on NATO to not just discuss Russia or or the uh, high north or the uh, eastern flank. This is about reminding NATO that it's a 360 degrees approach. And I think, for example, now that Turkey has ratified only Finland and pro- gone forward with Finland, but not not Sweden, this is also a scenario where Turkey can actually continue its discussions with NATO and the US. So by ratifying Finland in, at this point, but not Sweden, is something that actually... Without looking sure. without looking like yeah. it was blocking uh, everything at all. Uh, Gallup, what about these wider 
points that Turkey might want from the United States and from NATO. Uh, for example, uh, F-16 jets is one of the uh, things that's been thrown uh, into the speculation about what well, that's something that Turkey wants from the United States and, and President Joe Biden um, wants perhaps not to be uh, NATO, not to be so preoccupied with Russia, not to be preoccupied with the high north. How much do you think it's, it's part of that strategy? I think uh, like the U.S., is significantly part of this uh, discussion in one way or another because uh, the, this disagreement is not a bilateral one between between Turkey and Sweden. Uh, the uh, the U.S. has always been part of it. And let's not forget, in the last NATO summit, it was the last-minute U.S. intervention that saved the day. The Biden-Erdogan meetings, the U.S. pledged that it will support Turkey's request for buying the F-16 uh, jets from from the U.S. So uh, I think we will need a similar U.S. intervention prior to the Vilnius summit in July uh, to save to save the uh, to save the day and this is quite critical because uh, at a time of the Russian aggression in Ukraine, in Ukraine the NATO the western alliance the transatlantic alliance needs to show uh, as, uh, needs, to, needs to have a show of unity. This is uh, the Erdogan or the Turkey is not doing this as a favor to Russia is not making these demands. But the discord within the NATO, the discord within the Transatlantic Alliance is a good news for Russia, for uh, for sure. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, the official position remains to be pro-enlargement, but the fact that this enlargement is uh, being delayed, is being postponed, and the fact that there is a disagreement within the NATO alliance between two major uh, Western powers is a good news for, uh, for Russia. So at this stage, at a time of the Russian aggression in Ukraine at, a, at an era that is being defined by the great power competition between the West, Russia and China. It is more critical than ever that the West, uh, the transatlantic allies will show off the unity in Vilnius and for this to happen, the US needs to engage in this conversation. And I just want to pick up just one small point that you say it, you don't think Turkey is doing it as a favor to Russia, but Turkey has done very well, hasn't it, out of being in the middle, if you like, uh, during Russia's aggression in in, in Ukraine. Indeed, receiving yeah. many, many Russians and Russian money. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, absolutely. The uh, the uh, the Turkey has basically maintained this very close relationship, and also, like you know, many Russian uh, uh, businesses, uh, the many Russian money coming to uh, coming to Turkey, and then Russian tourists as well. Uh, so those are quite. Uh, quite critical for Turkey, uh, at the same time, you know, maintaining this uh, good relation with Kiev. Henry, you haven't really mentioned uh, Hungary. What Hungary's role is in all this? I think Hungary is a junior partner for Turkey in this choreography, because as soon as Turkey announced it will go forward with just Finland but not Sweden, then immediately we heard that Hungary will do the same. And this happened just a day before uh, President Nidista of Finland and, and, and Erdogan met, and also Orban and, and Erdogan met. So to, to me, it seems that Hungary can continue to postpone as long as Turkey can, in the sense that it seems that Budapest seems to think that if they do a favor to Turkey by not putting all the pressure for them for being the last ones that are still pending, they actually seek to get a some kind of a counter service from 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 the from the uh, Turkish side at some point. So to me, it seems that Hungary is maximizing its its gains by sort of trying to 
have a position where it doesn't have to uh, push Turkey forward, but also at the same time, we know that there's this dispute between EDU and Hungary on EU funds that are related to rule of law development. So to me, it seems that Hungary will just keep this process going as long as it can in order to see what it can get out of it. Finally, to wrap this up, what does the security of the Baltic look like now that NATO has got full access to the region? Well, certainly, if, if we look at the capabilities that all the Nordic countries combined can provide, you have over 200 modern aircraft, you have submarine capabilities, you have the largest artillery in Western Europe, in Finland, for example, you have Finland with a wartime strength of 280,000 troops. And both countries bring significant access to the high north, to the Arctic and the Baltic Sea region, uh, bringing strategic depth when it comes to security of supply and being able to fight a war if, if needed in the region. I think it creates a significant deterrent, something that Russia must take into account. And now that there's no limits between the Nordic countries and Nordic Baltic countries on where defense cooperation can go and reach out to, there's huge potential to build this so-called Nordic fortress that, in, that within NATO that uh, strengthens NATO's ability to execute collective security and defense in this region. So this will be probably one of the geopolitically significant events that has taken in this century. Yes, and Finland's argument, all this, not wanting to be parted from Sweden in joining NATO, as look, there's two long coastlines here and it doesn't make any sense to uh, j- just bring one into NATO. Let me ask you whether it makes any practical difference that Sweden isn't in NATO, given uh, the desire to, um, to, to have NATO's influence over this, this region. Well, there are two aspects to this. Uh, on on the short term, if if Sweden's not involved in NATO yet, that's not it. That's not it. That's not, that's not a problem. We haven't. We have Sweden that's a NATO invitee, surrounded by NATO countries, and also by countries that it has had very close defense cooperation for the past years, that exceeds peace times and, and goes all the way to crisis times. So the the need to involve Sweden in the regional defense arrangement is not going to go anywhere. But the problem is that if if this process goes on for too long for Sweden, if, if we talk about years that Sweden is not involved in NATO, which I think is highly unlikely. Yet, if this was the case, this would mean that NATO's operational planning in the region could not take place with Sweden in it, because NATO's operational planning is only open to full members. So that's why as yes. long as Sweden is not within NATO, it will slow down the process of trying to plan how to defend this region in this new in this new environment with a Nordic enlargement and also with a more aggressive Russia. So that is the problem. But to be honest, I don't think that's going to be the case. I think Turkey will eventually run out of, of chips to play. And this is, if it's not by Vilnius, then it's by the end of the year. I'm certain of that. Let's turn then to Turkey itself. We have been talking quite a bit about Turkey already, and over all of this discussion hangs the upcoming election in May and what this might mean. Gallup, the latest polls are getting closer, and President Erdogan's position is even slipping behind the opposition, despite various attempts he has made to see off various opponents. What is the position now? 
Well, uh, as you said, this is like really a critical election for Turkey. At stakes are the future of Turkish democracy, the future of the domestic political order in Turkey, Turkey's place in the world, the future of Turkish economy. So the uh, the one of the most important things about this election that you cannot foretell the result of it. Erdogan has been in power for two decades. And during this time, we could foretell the result of almost all the elections before before the election day because the opposition stood very little chance of defeating him. Now the polls are really tight and the opposition has advantage, but this advantage is still a fragile one. So the opposition, many respected polls shows that opposition is leading the race, but it's still with very small margins. So it's still fragile, it can be reversed, so therefore the result can go can go either way. But in the coming weeks, the political climate will be tenser even, because as I mentioned, the stakes are really high for the both sides. Uh, like the Turkish political system at stake, because... Uh, Just in- take us into that for a moment. What's at stake? What do you think President Erdogan would do if he wins, and you're implying to jeopardize Turkish democracy to undermine it more. What do you think the opposition would do? I think uh, if uh, if Erdogan wins, we will see more or less what we are seeing now: the further personalization of power, uh, the deinstitutionalization of uh, uh, of the uh, of Turkey. We will see the current uh, foreign policy, which is basically an geopolitical balancing act uh, between the major powers uh, in the world, the continuation of this unorthodox economy, uh, which we see that uh, put Turkey into, uh, made Turkey to experience one of the great economic crises. Uh, and also there is a significant difference of personality when you look at the, uh, when you look at the, the both candidates. Uh, so uh, the opposition promises to change the political system from the presidential to parliamentary system because the Turkey changed the system in 2017, return to more orthodox policies probably we'll see we will see a redress when it comes to turkish russian relationship turkish chinese relationship so we will see slightly a shift towards the uh, towards the west and uh, and in recent years as i said like erdogan represented the personalization of power the opposition promises the institutionalization of power and but i have to also uh, make a bit uh, uh, some caution is warranted particularly in foreign policy terms Post-Erdogan doesn't mean anti-Erdogan. It means a different from now. We will see a different uh, Turkey, but we will not see completely, uh, you know, reversing Erdogan's foreign policy uh, course. For instance, when it comes to Eastern Mediterranean, which is very important in Turkish-European relationship, Turkish-Greek relationships, we will hear a politer language coming from Ankara, but not much change of the policy uh, in this regard. What about towards Europe? Because uh, tw- I think a lot of people looking mm-hmm. at Turkey are thinking, well, if Erdogan didn't win, would it Turkey suddenly be much more emphatically pro-Europe? Uh, yes and no. Uh, n- uh, so the yes part, the language will change and that matters. Uh, so we will see probably a more polite and more kinder language. So not this bombastic exchange every day with different European leadership. So that's matter. Secondly, we will see probably Turkey uh, complying more with the European Court of Human Rights. That means like, you know, releasing of many prisoners, uh, the, uh, the political prisoners that you see in Turkey, such as the pro-Kurdish leader Selahattin Demirtas, the philanthropist uh, Osman Kavala. So that also matters. 
probably will see more engagement between Turkey and Europe. So the Turkey being invited to foreign policy dialogue with Europe, that in itself is important. We will see like, you know, the, the nature of Turkish-Russian relationship will change because in the end, we don't know to what extent the current form of Turkish-Russian relationship, to what extent it is Erdogan-Putin relationship. To, ex to what extent this is Turkey-Russia relationship. So that will change uh, to some extent, So which also is a good news when it comes to Europe because Turkey is a major actor when it comes to European security. But the fundamental uh, issues in Turkish-European relationship will remain the same. For instance, the fundamental one is the framework of this relationship. Turkey is officially a candidate country uh, and we neither Turkey nor Europe believes that this process will ever happen. But neither of none of them could come up with a um, uh, much more exciting uh, replacement to this. So the fundamental problem will continue, but the crisis management will be easier. So you say it's pivotal, uh, this election, and many, many people agree with you. On the other hand, I think I'm very struck by what you're describing, which is a difference of stance, a difference of direction of, of travel, but not a completely uh, different result. Henry, listening to this, what do you make of it? Fundamentally, the issue with, uh, with for example, Finland and Sweden and NATO and Turkey, this has never been about Turkey objecting NATO enlargement per se. I mean, this, that's, that's not the case. If, if we uh, look at, for example, the discussion that has been going on in, in the Turkish parliament uh, and, and by the Turkish officials, it has never been about objecting NATO enlargement. It's been, it's been more about trying to sort of imprint an understanding of the certain principles that drive Turkish foreign security and defense policy, trying to understand the Turkish security environment. And it's been hence a more perhaps principled approach. And quite frankly, I don't, I, I don't think that whether it be Erdogan and his party that continues in power or not, that this will be a decisively uh, issue for, for the Turks. I don't see that. I don't see it that way. Gallup, finally, just, just over this, should we assume that the elections will be free and fair? Well, I mean, there are many legitimate concerns, and we saw this in the uh, in the last municipal election in 2019, when basically politically the election board uh, forced a second run. But the the result has been even a more resounding defeat for the uh, government, whereas like in the first round. The uh, the mayor of Istanbul won the race by 13,000 votes. When the election board forced uh, a second round, then it uh, it lost by 800,000. So, I am uh, still concerns. Uh, I have uh, concerns about this, but I think if there if there if there will be a clear attempt of fraud, uh, I think then the government will lose even big even bigger. So in this regard, I I still have trust uh, in the election. Great. Well, we'll be doing a lot on Turkish democracy and the election, both before and after this critical poll. But with that, we are going to have to wrap up. So a big thank you to my guests, Galip Dale and Henry Van Hanen. Do follow us all on Twitter. And a reminder that you can find all of our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and all major platforms, as well as through our social media. So do like, follow and subscribe. Please do leave us a review to read more from our experts or to find out more about our events or to become a member. And we would love to have you 
don't forget to visit our website, chathamhouse.org, and you can find there the recent work of our Middle East and North Africa program, including work on Turkey. Next week, we're going to be taking a short break for Easter, but we'll be back the following week to discuss Russia's nuclear posture and the basing of nuclear weapons in Belarus. Goodbye from me, Bronwyn Maddox. Thank you for listening. 